Well, guys, hope you got a Bible with you, and if you do, make your way this evening to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. On Wednesday nights, we're working through the Bible chapters at a time. Luke has got long chapters, so for much of that, we're doing half a chapter at a time, and that's our aim this evening, doing half a chapter, Luke chapter 12. Hope you got a Bible and you're making your way there, speaking to you guys online, inviting you to the same, whether it's a physical paper Bible or you're opening it up with an electronic device. One way or another, we just invite you to be with us, that you would be able to just track along, see what's being said, and that God would speak to you tonight through His Word and in His power, and so we're longing for that, even in this space right now. So let's ask God for that. Would you join me right now? Let's ask God to give us ears to hear what He has for us. Father, tonight we just bring our lives before you, and glad to be able to do so, glad to be able to trust you, and ask right now that you would give us ears to hear what you would say to us, that there would be a sense of favor, that there would be a sense of your touch on and in our lives, so that we could hear what you're saying to us, anything that just makes that difficult on our side. It's not your side. You're faithful. You're a God who would speak to us this evening. But on our side, would you just soften, encourage, just breathe life into us, strengthen to us, give us the ability to hear you, speak by the power of your Spirit into our lives in a way that effectively helps us to know what you want to say to us this evening. God, I can't do that, but you can. And so I ask for that. I ask for that in power tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Warnings, warning signs. Hey, they're needed so often in our life. Places where you would see some warning, some beware of, telling you of something that has potential danger or damage. Hey, honestly, they're needed. Honestly, without them, so often we'd find ourselves in a world of hurt and confusion. And tonight, I kind of want you to feel it that way. Not in any kind of restrictive way, but in a protective way. That God speaks into our lives, that He speaks warning. Warning that we would be able to say, hey, these are spaces that we ought to be careful of. Spaces we ought not fall into. Spaces that we shouldn't go to. Because that's exactly where Jesus is going to be speaking this evening. Where Jesus is going to be drawing us and telling us, of things that you and I ought to be aware of, that we ought to be aware of, of danger, of things that could happen in our lives, and to find ourselves in safe space. In fact, you might just notice it, that's exactly how it begins. We get there in verse chapter 12, verse 1. It says, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together, so they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Yeah, in a pretty chaotic scene, just crowds all around, and yet Jesus is speaking. And his warning begins with the warning of hypocrisy. Where he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, it is worth noting, if you were with us last week, this really flows out of the end of chapter 11. He had just spent time confronting those and speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes where he told them, you know, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. And he had spoken this directly to them uh, for in, in the way that they were living their lives. And we spoke about that last week. I leave that for you and yet draw your attention that this is not a voice spoken to the Pharisees. This is spoken to his disciples even in the midst of the crowds. You know, again, it says it there in verse 1, it says he began to say to his disciples. 
He began to speak to those who weren't the crowds, they weren't the Pharisees, they're not the hypocrites, but he's telling those who are his followers that the need they have in this regard. And he's warning them, and thus he's warning us. He's warning us, he tells us, hey, you need to be aware of, you need to be you know, just concerned about, fearful of this thing that we know of called hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, most of you understand it well enough to not spend a great deal of time describing it. But it literally is the idea of pretending, acting. It's really what the word hypocrite comes from in the Greek. It has the idea of of putting on a good show, but nothing's actually real. It's all for externals, much like an actor would pretend to be, you know, something that he's pretending to be for his, you know, movie or TV show or whatever. It's not real. He says, well, that's how these people would live their lives. It's all for externals. It's all for shows. And it's all there. And so Jesus just tells us, hey, we ought to be aware of that. We ought to be able to recognize the danger of it, and very specifically, he describes it as leaven. Again, there at verse 1, at the end of it, he began to say to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Leaven is a powerful picture of both of sin in our world, all the way through the Old Testament, it would be that way, but it also has something that is a very permeating thing. If you've ever made that, if you ever kind of made, you know, a loaf of bread or watched somebody do it, you know, they can get the dough and they can just drop a little bit of leaven and, and it permeates the whole thing. It's just the way, it just the, the way it works, it very quickly spreads, very, you know, it just very naturally does that and it becomes something that's dangerous because of that. And so here he's telling us, hey, you ought to be aware of hypocrisy because it'll, it'll spread. It, it, it'll touch your life without even almost, you know, getting there unless you're aware of it unless you're aware of its danger, unless you're aware of, of what it is. And so Jesus gives us part of the way we can do that. As he says in verse 2 and 3, he says, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have spoken in the, in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. In a very simple way, Jesus just tells us, hey, there's nothing hidden. God knows everything. I mean, you, you know, you, you can fool people. You can't fool God. You can pretend for people, and it could actually work for a moment. You, you could come and, and sit here even on a Wednesday night and act like a Christian, even though you know you're not, <laughs> even though you're just pretending, and, and, and you know what? Everybody else might think you're cool, but God knows. You could put on a show, but it's like, hey, it's all going to be known, and if there's something about just the reality that it strikes, it's like, Hypocrisy is never going to play out well. It will always be known, and God's going to make it known. We're going to stand before Him. And one sense, just that sober reality all by itself can just penetrate just the allure of and the danger of hypocrisy. It's like, that's not going to work. You know, it's, pretending like everything's okay is not going to work out really well for any of us. Like, pretending that I'm doing well, pretending whatever that is, hypocrisy becomes this place of living externally instead of living with reality, which is everything that God's calling us to. It's a sober warning. In a world where so many things can be plastic and pretend, Jesus is just speaking to us. And he's just telling us that there ought to be a place in your life and my life that we're aware, that we are be, being aware of how dangerous this can be and say, that is just something I don't want to be just a, a reality in my life. I need to see that and stay away from it. Now, to that, he begins to add, and there's a lot in this chapter, and we could spend 
bunches of time going through all the details, and honestly, it's, it's worth it. I mean, there's so much in Jesus that he speaks about. Nevertheless, I want you to feel it almost as a whole. As we work through the first part of this chapter, there is just this common theme that, again, it is almost still in this idea of Jesus warning us, of calling us away from things. And so as he's warned us of hypocrisy, he now tells us in verse 4 this, and I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, and after that they have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. The danger that Jesus lays out to us is the danger of falling into a place of, of living our lives in the fear of men, living our lives that that controls our decisions, controls everything that's there. And again, he just tells us this and gives this to us where he says again, you know, I say to you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Those who could, who could do that in this world, in so many ways, that's the most that they can do. That's the most that they can do. And we have to kind of process this for a moment. I mean, I think it's probably worth just noting that Jesus is really beginning to speak of the reality of persecution. That's something that's taking place around the world today. It's something that has been a part of the Christian church. And you know what? It could very easily be in our future here in America. That's not an impossibility. But one of the things that is so needed to see in that is how very limited what men can do to us is. I mean, the very most that could happen, the very worst thing they could do is take your life. And that's not that bad. Because for us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I mean, the very worst thing that this world could ever do against you would be that. And in the scheme of things, it's not, it's not a, you know, I was like, well, okay, so I guess I have to go be with Jesus sooner if I'm his. There's something worth seeing that right now. In fact, right now, I just want to say it in a, in a, in a kind and gracious way. Fear is rampant in our world these days. I mean, it just is. So many people living their lives under just kind of the, the banner of fear, and yet sometimes it's not even asking the question. So like, what do you, I mean, so worst case scenario, I mean, what if it goes as bad as you think it could go? I mean, is it really that bad for, I mean, you know, you know, you know, just Jesus comes back more quickly or we get taken home. I mean, that there's a sense of just almost looking at the world and saying, you know, it's not as powerful as it thinks it is. The, the, the fear that's in this world, it's not, it's, it can't really threaten us that big. And yet sometimes we just don't really process that through. Sometimes there's almost this vague sense of, a fear that can permeate us and, and just as, oh, I'm just so afraid. I'm afraid of what's happening. I'm afraid of the world. I'm afraid of, uh, of where things are going to go. And, and we just haven't processed it through. And Jesus is like, why would you be afraid? I mean, the worst. I mean, the biggest thing they could do is that that's not where your fear should be. Don't be afraid of those who could kill the body. But after that, they have nothing more that they can do to you. Instead, he calls us to fear God. He says, I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I should say you should fear him. That God, you know, it is not just limited to this life. It's limited to all eternity. There's a sense of that honor, that fear, that respect. In fact, in that, I need to say it that way. Because when I say, hey, don't fear man, fear God, it doesn't mean like an even exchange, like, you know, that you're, you're trembling in fear of man, and now you should be trembling in fear of God. No, the fear of God's entirely different. In fact, Jesus speaks about it is he says it this way in verse 6, kind of connecting to that. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? 
and yet not one of them is forgotten before God, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear. Therefore, you are of more value than sparrows. I mean, he just kind of speaks into this, this place where he's calling us to, to live in this honor and this, okay, I, I don't, I'm, I'm a more afraid of offending God, but I'm not, af- I mean, his love for us, he says, you know, sparrows, they're, they're just, you know, they can, you know, two for a copper coin, but he says, you're of more value than them. He knows every hair on your head and cares about that, that God knows you better than you know yourself. Now, I know that's probably a simple thing, but I just want you to say it again. There's not anybody in this room who knows exactly how many hairs you have. Nobody. I mean, there wasn't one person that woke up this morning and started counting. One, two, three. I mean, you have no idea. I mean, because it's changed today. You, there, there's, this is outside the realm of your even perception or concern. God cares about you that much. He knows you right now. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows everything that's happening to you. He knows every little thing that's affecting your life. And he cares about you. Now, that's powerful. I mean, it's just powerful. And for somebody, you just need to believe that because you've kind of gotten into space. It's like, well, you know, God's running the universe. And if he knows who I am, you know, I'm kind of like number, you know, 4,165,000, you know, 238 over there. That's just me there. God's like, no, I know you. I, I know, I, I'm concerned about your life. I know everything there is about you. And, and that kind of place should cause us very easily to make this transition where instead of being kind of vaguely afraid of the world, we very honestly say, you know what, they can't do that. And they can't do that much to me, but I'm afraid of it. I want to, I'm, I'm afraid of God. I want to please Him. I want to live in light of His favor and His love and His understanding. Mean, that's really where I'm transitioning this. And it needs to be that transition so that for some of you, again, you're living in this space that it's almost like you're driving in a lane of fear, that you're just kind of hanging there. And, and the, the way you get out of that is, is to change that and say, I'm, I'm not afraid of people. I'm, I'm going to live my life under the you know, consciousness of God knowing me, living in light of who He is, living in light of me standing before Him. And that transition needs to happen for some, that it would be an honest place of saying, it's God that I'm living for, it's God that I, I look to, and I, I want to be aware of this. I want to be, be aware of how easily that could happen, and, and that it just would move me away from living the life that God has for me. So hypocrisy, fearing man, that's part of it, and then it amps up a little bit more. As he's told us the danger of fear, he adds to it now the danger of, of just denying Christ, of be, beware of that happening in our lives. Notice with me what it says. This is also, verse 8, I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So again, connecting it, he begins it with this idea of also, here's what I'm telling you. Also, this is what I'm speaking to you. And in a very simple way, I just want to again reiterate, in some ways he's speaking about persecution. He's talking about living in a world where that begins to become more and more real and how that would in times move people away from aligning their lives to Christ, confessing Christ as their Savior, confessing Him. Imagine this with me. Imagine living in a world where people could, you know, lose their job or lose their positions over being a Christian. 
Okay, well, actually, you don't have to imagine that. That's actually happening. Let's try to imagine a world where you could be belittled and, and mocked for believing in Christ. Well, actually, no, I don't, that, you don't have to imagine that either. You live in that world. But let's take it a step further. What if you lived in a world that that could then become just essentially dangerous for you? That to name the name of Christ could very easily move you into a place of being arrested and or even killed for your faith, that again has been a reality for Christians around the world. Today it is. There are spaces in our world today that to name the name of Christ moves you. I mean, it's not an automatic. It's not like as soon as you confess you know, Christ, you're going to be arrested and killed. But just by doing so, it's now become a very real potential reality. In some of the, the extreme communist countries in our, in our nation, in some of the, the, the extreme socialist countries, those are some very present realities happening today. And again, it could be the reality that's here. And so into that, he's just speaking this. So we've just talked about, hey, don't be afraid of men. Don't let men be your, fra- your fear. And so now he's calling us to this. And he's telling us, you know, beware of denying Christ. Be- beware of being one of those people that kind of recognizes Jesus is real, but doesn't want to, you know, publicly acknowledge and, and even more forcefully give your life to Christ because of the danger that that might entail, because of the cost that might be there. And he just simply just kind of says it in a simple way. Your eternal destiny is settled here. I mean, it's right here where he says, okay, if you're going to confess me before men, Jesus says, then I'll confess you before my Father and before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied in the presence of that. And that changes everything. I mean, it puts it in the realm of, Okay, it's so much worse. I mean, that's just such a, a bigger deal. I, I wish I could say this better, but I just want to try to talk to you about it this way. We have a number of missionaries that we support in our fellowship here uh, that are serving right now in kind of Muslim-oriented cultures, and, and this is such a very real deal for them. Because here's what happens. There becomes this space where God is drawing somebody, and, and, they, and their hearts begin to awaken to the reality that you know, their, their whole culture has been built on lies, and Jesus is the truth, and that Jesus is the why, and, and, and the reality of him. But as soon as that begins to happen there, there very often, very quickly becomes, that would cost me. I could lose so much. I mean, my family, my family might disown me. I mean, I could lose, I could lose my job. I, I could lose my friends. I mean, to even just acknowledge this reality, it becomes something that so easily could just cost me so much. And so there's actually a large number of people that are living right in this limbo area that they no longer believe in Allah, they no longer believe in the Quran, they no longer believe or didn't believe, and they really do recognize there's just something about Jesus. And, and they're right there on the border, but fear has locked them down. The, the fear of, you know, that, that might, boy, I don't know. I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could go there. And yet what Jesus is just speaking to him is like, this is, this is your eternity you're speaking about. Your fear of man, your fear of what it might cost you here, which is so temporal and so passing, to let that keep you from believing in Jesus, that's everything. Now, I use kind of this Muslim-oriented culture 
But I'm just going to tell you here, maybe there's somebody even in this room right now. Maybe there's somebody online right now. It's exactly where you are. It's weird. The cost is not so high right here in the United States right now, but honestly, there are some people that can live right there. I remember that limbo, actually. I remember when God was beginning to draw me to surrender my life to Jesus, and, and you know, up to that point in time, in my mind, Christians were the dumbest people in the entire world. I mean, it was just like, Christians, those people are stupid. You know, that's what they are. You know, they're just unscientific. They're just foolish. And, and there was this, this place where it's like, okay, if I confess this, I've just aligned myself with, with, with crazy things. If I, if I, you know, somehow begin to go this direction, I'm, there, was, there was this, you know, moment of like, oh, no. You know, I mean, everybody's going to think I'm that person. But thankfully, God did continue working, and I'm just telling you, maybe that's you even this evening, a place where you are so close to confessing Jesus and saying, okay, I want to be in. I really want to, I, 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 you know what? I want to confess Jesus as my Savior. I want to live my life for Him, no matter what the cost is to that, no matter whether it costs you know, me, me the respect of my family or my friends or, or what it might you know, hinder you know, things in this world, so what? you know, confessing Jesus. I mean, to know Him, that changes everything. And, and, the, and my choice here is going to determine my eternity. And so I just speak it as clearly and powerfully as I can. You know, if that's you this evening, if you're he- hovering in that, you know, kind of limbo land, then, then let this just speak through to you. I mean, you're going to lose this life anyway. What would you have in this world that you're not going to, you know, give up it anyway? And the very worst this world could do to you would be to take your life, and that's not a big deal compared to eternity. If you confess Jesus, that's forever life. Jesus says, if you confess me, I'll confess you. But you deny me. You, you choose to say, you know, I, I don't want to go there. It's like, then you, you've, you're going to lose that eternal stand. You're going to lose eternity with him. And that's scary. Add to that, and it kind of just ties into there. He says it in verse 10, and anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Now, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is quite a complex and difficult subject. I don't have time to give it to you in entirety, so let me give it to you in a very simple way. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? In the most simple way, it is to resist God until you no longer feel it any longer. It's to continue to say no to Him and, and resist Him till that work of the Spirit, who is the one that awakens us to Christ, becomes something that, that we deaden our hearts to. I just want to say it again. If you're a Christian here this evening, you cannot commit the blasphemy of the Spirit. Please understand that. You cannot. That is not a part of that. If you're here and you're kind of like, you know, I, I really kind of in that limbo, I feel God calling me. You haven't done it yet, you know, because you still feel the pull. You still feel that place of turning, but the idea is a very simple way that there is a space that happens when the heart becomes so hard and, and so resistant that someone is now past the point of even being able to hear the Spirit. Now, again, it's just, there's much in there. I mean, people have these great fears, but I'm just telling you, it's even powerful the way Jesus says it. You know, you speak against Christ, there's, there's going to be forgiveness there. So you've, you've, you've moved against it, you've rejected it, but there's that space where you resist so long that your heart becomes hard. And, and that becomes, again, a serious warning. So there, there is this warning for this person sitting in limbo where they're just living in, like, I don't know, maybe I'm going to give my life to Jesus. I don't know if I am. I don't know. And he's like, okay, there, not only is that dangerous if you allow that to keep you from Jesus, but it's dangerous if you stay in that limbo 
and not surrender your life to Jesus, that you're going to get to the space that you no longer feel it any longer. That the pull of the Spirit in your life that's trying to draw you to Jesus will be something eventually you will grow hardened against. And so Jesus is now, you know, giving that warning. He's telling us, hey, that's, you don't want to do that because there, there becomes a place where there's no more forgiveness there. There's no more space out of that. Now, to that, he gives one other nugget in this place of not denying Jesus, and, and now it does very specifically speak to us as believers. He says, now, when they bring you to the synagogues and the magistrates and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. There really is a promise that Jesus gives us of His help, of the Spirit's help for us in persecution. Now, this is a very powerful promise, a sometimes misunderstood promise. This is not a promise for uh, lazy pastors to kind of say, well, you know, I'm just going to wait for God to give me something to say, you know, not going to prepare. It's, not, it's not, a, not a space for lazy people sharing the gospel. It's like, I haven't even thought about it. No, there is a place for that. But it really is a genuine fear that if persecution is a reality, and if confessing Jesus is needed, like not turning away from Him, one of the great fears that people have is like, how will I do that? How will I hold fast to Jesus if, if my life becomes at risk, if, if they're beginning to threaten me? I mean, how will I do that? And Jesus gives a very specific promise to that that has been well just documented through history. He says, I'll meet you in that. In that very hour, you will not face that alone. That, that if, you, if you find yourself under such pressure and you're trying to hold faithful to God, He will give you in that very hour what to say. It's been kind of told often that some of you guys would recognize it. Corrie ten Boom, who just an incredible you know, lady living for Christ, lived during World War II, lived literally being taken into the Holocaust because of both being Jewish, but also being just kind of, I mean, for them protecting the Jews and, and watching out all those things. In many ways, as she lived there with her parents who were kind of defending and, and rescuing and hiding Jews uh, in, in the time where the persecution began to break out, as a young child, she wrestled through it, and, and she documents in her, in her writings one of the conversations she had with her dad, and she's like, you know, Dad, I, I know we're doing the right thing, and, but I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that, you know, of what this might mean for us, and I'm afraid, you know, how will I handle that if it comes? I mean, how will I handle that if they arrest me and, and, and put me under that pressure? I don't feel like I can handle that, and her dad just began telling her, says, Corey, when I send you to the store to, to buy, you know, a loaf of bread or something like that, when do I give you the money? <laughs> do I give you the money like, you know, a month in advance and say, hey, in a month, you're going you're gonna to need to go to the store and I'm going to supply. She says, no, I mean, I give it to you in that very moment. I send you to the store and I, I supply into you what's needed to face that. And he told her, he said, God will do that for you. That if you find yourself in that space and we are, you know, arrested for what's happening in our lives, then God will give us in that moment. And Corey would testify over and over again how faithful God was to do that, that her great fears of being able to face some of the most difficult things that her faith would take her into, God did this very thing, that he carried her in that hour. Now, I say that to say it to you, because, and again, for some of us, we're just like, well, what if it did happen? I mean, what if persecution ever becomes a reality here in the United States? I mean, what if I had to face what some of these other people are facing? You know, what if I had to, what if, what if you know, being a Christian could get me arrested or even killed? Could I do that? And some of you are like, I don't feel like I could. I mean, I'm not sure I could. And again, that's what Jesus is saying. Hey, you don't need to worry about that. Don't worry about that today. 
you're not there right now. If that's not where you are, say if they arrest you and they bring you before synagogues, which is religious, or magistrates or authorities, don't worry about what you should say or what you should answer. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that hour what you ought to say. He'll carry you in that moment. He'll carry you in that moment. And there's just a godly, wonderful confidence that one more time just speaks to us into this place of thinking, you know, God, I don't want to deny you. I don't want to deny you, but I feel insufficient to it today. Well, don't give in to your fears. Because, I mean, if you're, if you're saying, I'm going to hold fast to you, but please help me, he'll carry us in those moments. And that serious reality ought to be a space in our lives of saying, okay, I just recognize there's a danger. There's a danger of denying Christ. I don't want to go there. And Lord, if it ever gets harder, I'm going to believe that you'll carry me through that. So the warnings begin to flow. Hypocrisy, fearing man, denying Christ. And now he adds to it the danger of covetousness. And it switches to that. And again, there's kind of a connection because fears not only of life, but sometimes about the things of this world often come up, but it enters into it in an interesting way. It says in verse 13, then one from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? So there's a lot we don't know about this account. Obviously, there's somebody in the crowd that decides at this moment that he's going to ask Jesus to intervene into his situation. Now, it might be an incorrect guess, but I'm going to just give a guess. I'm going to give a guess that what he's asking for, he believes to be essentially right. That somehow someone in his family has wronged him. In that culture, the, the oldest in the family was the one that kind of was given the responsibility of passing on the inheritance, inheritance throughout the family. The oldest often got a double portion to maintain the household and then split the rest up with the rest of the relatives. My guess, and again, it's just a guess, is that the oldest has not done that. The oldest has probably got the inheritance, and if he's given anything, it's a mere pittance, and it's not been a fair kind of distribution of what the family is. And so here's this guy asking Jesus, like, I'm being treated unfairly. My brother, you know, he's not giving me my fair share, and this is wrong. It shouldn't happen this way. Jesus, fix it. Jesus wants you to fix this, and Jesus answers it quite powerfully. He just simply tells him, man, verse 14, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Like, that's not what I've come here to do. I'm not that one that does that. Now, there's a powerful reality, but let me just quickly say a couple things. That's not saying that Jesus wouldn't call us as Christians to do the right thing. He certainly does. But at the same moment, the righteousness that he's bringing into this world right now, it isn't to fix all the unfair things in this world that are present right now in this world. Yes, he will in heaven, but it's not really what he's doing here. And yet that's a very real struggle. I mean, again, we live in a, in, a, in, a, in a great kind of a nation that has a lot of privileges to it. And sometimes this attitude only becomes more apparent in our culture where we want our rights. I deserve it. It's, I, I have rights, you know. I have, I have rights that are my right. Things that other people in other cultures like, I don't have any rights. I don't know what you're talking about. But because we have rights, sometimes we feel like it should be more. And we kind of don't under, we're like, we want God to be like, fix my rights. I mean, I'm being treated unfairly. They're doing me wrong. And it's an interesting thing for Jesus to kind of look at us and go, why, what are you even asking for? I mean, did you think that's what I'm here to do is to make your life more comfortable and to try to fix everybody treating you wrongly here? Is that what you really thought this thing is? He then just tells them, Verse 15, and he said to them, take heed 
And beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. He says, here's what you need to be aware of in this whole deal. That the warning now is a warning of covetousness, of wanting, of desiring. And he just says it so well. I mean, just so powerfully well, there's just no way to say it better than Jesus just said it. That is not life. Life is not made up of what you have. You know, so if one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Sometimes I just feel like you could just take that verse and like, okay, I just need to like, just paint this across the hearts of Americans because we have become some of the most covetous people. And sometimes thinking that, you know, there really is something to that. You know, he who dies with the most toys wins. That if I have more, if I have bigger, if I have better, and, and, and I need to have what's, what's coming to me, and I need all, it's like, that's not really life. Do you really think that's, that's the nature of what you live for? It, it neither is eternal nor satisfying. To, to make stuff the, the source of life in your life is an empty pursuit. It's an empty place that he calls us to, and he just tells us, hey, that's not living. Make sure that's not what you're thinking of, because that kind of thought process sometimes moves into this place where it's like, I deserve my rights, or I deserve stuff, and it's like, you know, the real problem is that you've allowed covetousness to, just to, to get a hold of you, and that's not living. He then speaks a very familiar parable into that, where he simply says it this way, then he spoke a parable to him, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns, and I'll build greater. And there I'll store all my crops and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Very powerful story. We're stopping right there. And I just want to pause and tell you, but you probably already hopefully can recognize with me, for many people, that's the American dream right there. Like, I just want to have money. I want to get stuff. And then I want to you know, build bigger stuff. And I, and, I, and I want to put stuff away. And I want to store up a 401k. And I want to have an IRA. And then I'm going to have stuff. And then I'm going to get to this place where I can retire. And maybe even retire early. And then I can just tell myself, now you've earned it. Now you've kind of arrived. And so you ask people, I mean, coming out of college or going to a place, like, what do you want? It's like, I want to get rich. That's what I want. I want to retire by the time I'm 45. I want to retire by the time I'm 50. I mean, I just, that's my whole goal in life is to get stuff so that at some point I can say, hey, you know what? Now you can take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. It's for some, for so many, the American dream. And Jesus just speaks to him in verse 20. He says, but God said to him, fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will be all those things which you've provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's a very powerful reality. I, mean, I don't have to just say much more than what Jesus said. He just looks at it and says, that's a really stupid way to live your life. That's fool. I mean, like that's a dumb way to live. So you're going to gain all this stuff and then you're going to die. And so whose was it? The cars, the, the houses, the vacation homes. I mean, so, so all that you leave behind... You can give it to somebody else, you know, and, and then you'll say, but you, you've lived empty towards that which is eternal. You've let your life be consumed by this American dream that doesn't even satisfy, because riches don't satisfy, but so often it's the hope of what might satisfy that drives people. For so many people that are caught in this cycle, they're not satisfied. They're not satisfied with what they have, but they have this idea one of these days. One of these days, I'm going to get there, and I'm going to retire, and I'm going to fish, and I'm going to do whatever I want, and that's going to be really life. And it's like, really? You really? Th it's not going to satisfy you. 
It's not satisfying now. It's not satisfying then. And, and, and the real lie is it's this covetousness that's drawing you towards something that will never satisfy you, that is never the source of life in God is. So he calls us in a very simple way to recognize how dangerous that is, that there's a dangerousness of, of covetousness. Well, there's much more we could say, but again, I hope I'm making it clear because it's really clear. This is not one of those things that's like, man, I can't imagine even being that way. <laughs> Dumb people, I wouldn't do that. Yes, you, I mean, for so many of you, it's like, man, I just, I catch it. I mean, I find myself get there. I, I mean, I, I know it's dumb, and then all of a sudden I begin thinking, you know, if I had a little bit more, I'd be happier. And, you know, if I had that, I'd be satisfied. If I had that car, if I had that house, if I had this place, and it's like, that is never going to satisfy you. God loves us. He takes care of us, but to, to make our life in this... Go- empty pursuit leads to emptiness. And so Jesus is just saying, hey, you ought to be aware of that. <laughs> you ought to be aware of and say, okay, stay away from that. And if you kind of find yourself crossing into it, get back out of it, because that's dangerous, destructive territory. Well, that leads to one more that really logically flows to it. And we'll just simply say that this desire for money, this fear of life, so often just could be just said very simply that it's a danger of worry and the power of worry. Now, there's a lot of stuff as he gives this to us here, and quite honestly, just so incredibly powerful that you could just dive down deep into all of this here, but I just want you to feel it as we kind of just work through this, and this calling where he's going to tell us to to move away from this place of living a life of worry. It says in verse 22, then he said to his disciples, one more time, this is for Christians, he's talking to believers, he's talking to his kids, he says, therefore I say to you, do not worry about life what you will eat, or or about your body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn. God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? He just calls us away from this. He says, I don't want you to worry. I don't want you to live this life where your life is lived anxiously about stuff. And again, that's the idea here. We're not just talking about just, you know, kind of concern for people's souls or something else. We're like, no, we're worried about money. Like, will my 401k last? Will my IRA last? I mean, what's going to happen with the economy? What's going to happen with, you know, it's like, don't let that be your worry. I mean, it's not really worth living. And I just, again, I think it's, he says it's so much better than I ever could. There in verse 23, life is more than that. Real living isn't living for stuff. If, you, if your life is geared around material possessions and wanting and having, you are not really living. Life, real life is so much bigger than that. Living in, with Christ, walking in Him, walking in the life of, of, of just relationship, it's so much more than that. How empty is that person who thinks his life? says life is more than that. It's not that that's not a part of our lives. It's not that it's a part of it, but God knows that. And Jesus just communicates the incredible value that we have again in God's sight, something he'd already said, right? When we talked about the persecution and fearing not men, fearing God, and he told us, hey, God knows the very hairs of your head, and you know, you should, you should know that. Well, he's saying the same thing here, where he says, consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn. God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? That, that you should learn from them. You should learn from, from these if you, if you could almost watch that. And it's a worthwhile thing someday. Hey, you got some time, some time, and you're out one another, just, just watch the birds for a little bit. 
I mean, watch, watch how they live. Just, just make it a little bit of a focus and watch. You know, they're not like, you know, you know stressing out over, you know, somebody else has a bigger nest than I do. I just got to have that nest. Or just like, there's a simplicity. There's a, it's just if you could learn from the way they handle stuff, then you could recognize, you know, God cares about you. It's not that he doesn't know you are made to need clothing or supply, or, but God loves you and there's a value of that where he says you shouldn't worry about that. You shouldn't worry about your life. It simply adds to it, just says in one sense, not only is it a dangerous thing, it's actually quite an ineffective thing. He says it there in verse 25, and which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If you are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? It's comical, but true. So, if you are worried about something like how tall you are or how, how, much is that, how much is your worry actually accomplishing? Nothing. Nothing. Now, again, I'm going to just take this and very quickly make a quick application, which I hope is okay, but I think it connects. So often we worry about things that we have no... no it, 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 there's nothing we can do about it, which is kind of the idea. And for some of you, if I can say this in a very kind and simple way, for some of you, it's things in our nation and what's happening politically. But let's just be honest. You live in Roswell, New Mexico. Like, you live here. Like, so what, what is your fretting in your home going to do about nothing? It's like, so why, why, if you can't change some of this stuff, why would you even do it? Why would you spend time doing something that's not even actually going to produce anything? It's not even going anywhere. It's not even, you know, it says, why would you do this? Why are you anxious if you're not able to do the least of the things? If you can't even worry yourself and make yourself taller, if you're worried, you know, if you can't change something like that, then why would you allow worry to be that that now consumes your life? It's an ineffective use of time. It's an ineffective space in life. Consider the lilies, Jesus says, verse 27. How they grow, they neither toil nor spend. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you of little faith? That he just simply says, hey, you know what? You should be in the space that just recognizing that God provides and you should learn even from the flowers, even from the lilies. And so again, it's just a simple object lesson. Do it sometime especially when we kind of start heading to spring, go out and just sit next to a flower garden and just watch them for a moment. And it, as simple as it can be, just recognize. Boy, they're not strategic. There's no, there's no sweat pouring down. You know, there's no like, oh, I'm so anxious about whether, you know, I'm actually going to bloom. No, there's something just about existing. There's something, simplicity in, in the way that God's designed that. And he says, if you could learn from that and God's working something, how will he not do something in you if you could have that same I just, I'm going to trust God to provide. I'm going to trust and, and just soak up life as he provides and, and learn from the flowers in a way that would be there because worry itself is an ineffective use of our time. He adds to this and just simply says it in this way. Verse 29, And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after. And your father no, your father knows that you need these things. That worry not only is it just not really what life is about, not only is it an effect, he says that's what the world does. That's how the world lives their lives. But if you're a child of God, 
you should be different. And this is one of that place where that should be different in your life. You shouldn't be stressed in the same way because you have a heavenly father that cares about you. You have a heavenly father that knows you and is at work in your life. So to live your space in anxiety over things that you have no power to control, not only is it an effective use of time, you're ignoring the incredible relationship you have that we have this space that we ought to be so different, and this ought to be that way. Now, would to God that it is. I hope it is. But I'm going to simply kind of say this graciously. I'm not always certain. It ought to be that way that the very definition of Christian is one that does not live their life in anxiety and worry, but I'm not certain that's always the case. Oh, that the world would see it. As our world is gripped with fear and, and, and doubts and worries, we, if they could see in us something that's different, that, that our Christianity is defined by, it's like, I have, a, I have a heavenly father, and he's bigger than all of this. And he knows me, he knows what he's doing, I trust him. And that could just, in so many ways, be something that just lays our lives as incredibly different. Now, to that, he calls us to live that out by making that our pursuit. Verse 31, but seek the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Like, make this your pursuit. Seek God and he'll, to, he'll provide all your needs. There is so much there. We could so easily do an entire message on that verse alone, but I just lay that with you. and It's, it's, a, it's a directional site. Like, make him your pursuit. Don't worry and say, I'm going to pursue God and know that he could take care of everything that I'm going through, that he could be the one that would provide that. To that, he adds this in verse 32. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is a very gracious statement from Jesus, by the way. In fact, it's unique. Um, Jesus talks about anxiety several times in his ministry. He does so in the Sermon on the Mount, and some of you would recognize some of these same statements he'd made then. Uh, you know, where he calls us away from worry, and he calls us to, to trust God, to seek first the kingdom of God, and not to worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough troubles of its own. So it was another space where Jesus spoke similar truth, but this verse specifically is, is just given to us here in Luke, and I like it. And there's something gracious and gentle about it, where he says, do not fear little flock. In fact, it's kind of interesting in the Greek, it would almost be better translated do not fear, little, little flock. I mean, it's a space of just recognizing how small we are, how great he is. In fact, I just want to put it on the screen. You know, do not fear, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In a space where we could so easily live our lives in worry, he just speaks to us and says, you know what, you're, you're his flock. I mean, yes, you're small. God wants to. It's his pleasure it's his desire to pour out into your life his kingdom, both now, but so much more eternally, heavenly. Now, if that could be something that you would believe, not only is it just a glorious truth, but it absolutely destroys worry. It's like, my father, I mean, look at this. It's his pleasure. It's his desire to, to pour into my life, and he's going to bring me into heaven. He's going to bring me into the kingdom, and why would I live any other way? There's a glorious place where that fear wouldn't grip me in part just because of this incredible relationship I have. And so as he speaks that, he calls us again to live it. Verse 33, sell what you have, give alms, provide yourselves money bags, which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, 
where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where he just simply says, hey, make this your treasure, like so that you're going to live your life not living in fear, but investing into eternity, living for eternity. That that would touch everything in your life so that even generosity flows out of that and, and kindness flows out of that. Because the sad reality is for some people, they live their whole lives hoarding only to pass away and realize that they, they never blessed. And yet he's telling us, if you really believe this, then you would be a blessing. You'd be a blessing everywhere you go because you're not living in this anxiety. You're living in a place of, of joy and, and, and the joy of his kingdom and all that he's doing. And so he's calling us away from this. He's calling us away from a space where that would be the reality in our life, where that would be, you know, very real dangers. Now, I hope you hear in this, in fact, in everything we're saying tonight, that these are very serious, dangerous places, that Jesus is not planting a beware of sign loosely or without consequence, but it's also so gentle. It's also, I mean, Mark through this whole thing is God's like, I have, there's a better life for you than this. There's a better life than living a hypocritical life or fearing people or, you know, surely not denying Christ or living in that kind of fear or living in covetousness or worry. Those things, they, not only would they ruin so much of our life, but they cause us to miss everything that God has because what he has is so much better. Think about Paul in his testimony in Philippians 3, he would say it this way, Yet indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish, so I could gain Christ. Paul just looks, he says, here's where I am, and, he, and he's making these value statements. He says, you know, as, as God began to get a hold of his life and drew him into to the righteousness in Christ, he said, in many ways, some of these things became very real things, like you know, loss of position or loss of the uh, esteem of man or, or, or things that he thought was his. He says, you know, I, I, to see all that that I was going to lose, I count it as nothing compared to the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. We're going to sing this in a moment when we close the song, Knowing You, and hoping even out of that it flows. But there's this place where he says, okay, this is so much better. In fact, I love this statement. I wish I could somehow help you feel how powerful it is because he says it's the excellence of knowing Christ. And the word excellence has the idea of beautiful or desirable, but that's not even close enough. It's a very powerful Greek word that has the idea of super surpassing. It's like this passes everything else up. Like knowing Jesus, it, it, it makes everything else that people look for in life as empty and, and pale and poor. It's so dry. It's so empty. It's so not worth living for because knowing Jesus is life. He says, you know, I, I, I've lost all these things. They don't mean anything to me. I was going to lose them anyway, but I have Jesus. And, and I found that life is found in him. And Paul is saying, hey, that's the reality that he has for. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do for us here. He's telling us of these things that would be life just, just emptying, life just drawing away. He says, I have this where you could say, okay, knowing Jesus is, is excellent. Why would I spend my time in fearing man or covetousness or worry? All these spaces that draw me away from the life that's mine in Christ. So tonight, I just want to call you to that. I want to call you into a space where Jesus would give very serious warnings and get you back on track. Now, I know this. If I've made some 
sense, if I've helped this kind of be clear at all, I know that there's not anybody tonight that's like, boy, I'm so glad those aren't, those aren't things I struggle with. <laughs> I don't, I, none of those are any of my concerns. I know that if you're paying attention, that's not true. Maybe some of them aren't, but maybe others like, yeah, that does pull me. I mean, I find myself over here. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of what could happen in my life, or I'm worried about my money, or, or whatever, and, and you find yourself at times being just drawn away, and I just want these warnings to be genuine and say, hey, get back on track. That's not living. That, that's an empty lifestyle, and it will only just drain you of life. Life is found in Christ, and it's a good life. So I call you to it. Maybe, again, it's the first time. Maybe you're that one that is really close in that limbo area. We just tell you, hey, Jesus, if you, if you would step into the life in Christ, it is so much better. We call you to Christ. Maybe you know him this evening, and much of what Jesus was giving his warnings to were to those who were his followers, where he told us he was speaking to his disciples. Hey, you need to be aware. You need to be aware because these things will rob you of life. May you heed those warnings and be on track to real life because it is so much better. Let's pray for that. God, I thank you for this evening and just these warnings that Jesus, you very genuinely and rightly give to our world and to our lives. I recognize they are needed warnings to me. I need to see the warning signs. I need, I need to feel them in my life. And I just pray that, Lord, you would pull me and you'd help us to be directed away from hypocrisy, away from fearing men, away from denying you with our lives, away from covetousness and away from worry that these areas that are so destructive would not be the places that we find ourselves just veering off course into. God, you would just protect us and draw us into life in Christ. I pray that for all of us who know you, but I also, again, take that moment to pray for the one that's living right on the edges right now. They're right in that border territory, almost a Christian, but not yet. And everything in this is playing into their lives. I pray that they would recognize just that surrendering to you is life and they'd find it in you. May you draw them to you tonight. I pray for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll close.